as we embark upon this episode, I cannot help but think of Pythagoras. The 4th century philosopher and mathematician believed celestial bodies made their own music. Between the earth and the moon, there is one full tone. Between the moon and Mercury, one half tone and so on, corresponding to the distance between each planet from one another, resulting in a universal harmony, a music of the spheres. Thank you for that beautiful introduction, Erica. Welcome to Black Mountain Radio. I'm Erica Vital Lazar, writer, curator, captain to your tenille and peaches to your herb. <laughs> and I'm Sara Ortiz, a curator, literary dynamo, a karaoke lover, and I'm also a former alto singer for the company of voices by the name of Conspirare. Can we have a little bit of a sample of something? (laughs) Absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) Thought I'd try. So, Sara, I'm excited about this next story. Because on Saturday mornings throughout my childhood, Don Cornelius opened Soul Train Mm -hmm. by inviting you on a musical trip Hello and welcome aboard. You're right on time for another ride on the big train. We'll be coming right back to you with great sounds from the Pointer Sisters. The Soul Train was a metaphor. The idea that music is transportation. That music is time travel. That it's a destination and can take you back. Transport you into the past or forwards to a totally different place in time. So that no matter where you are, when that song flows out of someone's speakers... Or when Alexa goes rogue and spins Stevie Wonder's songs in the key of life, you go back to your wedding reception or back to the school dance in 12th grade. You may be sitting in your car or in your living room and then suddenly you're gone, lifted to another space and time. I love that music can transport us that way. And today's episode begins with another blast from the past. It's from a similar time as those days of Soul Train, but a very different world, and one might say a kind of a different audience a little bit too. But it's a world that you may remember. In the most recent issue of The Believer, Chris Feliciano Arnold tells the story of Joe Raposo, the composer credited with creating the iconic Sesame Street sound. The Sesame Street songbook was born from the sonic imagination of Joe Raposo, the prodigal son of a prodigious Brazilian Portuguese violinist who immigrated to frigid Fall River, Massachusetts at the end of the Great War with a dollar and fifty cents in his pocket, still wearing the sandals he wore on the island of San Miguel. Joe's father knew hunger, and he knew that a man who could play an instrument could always put food on the table, which is why he sat his son at the piano bench as soon as he was old enough to reach the keys, teaching him how to keep his back straight, how to let his elbows and arms fall freely from his shoulders, how to round his hands and stretch his fingers. When Joe wasn't learning how to play, 
He was learning how to listen. Cole Porter, George Gershwin, Harold Arlins, and Richard Rogers, spinning on the phonograph in their duplex across the street from St. Francis Church. His father showed him how notes on a sheet became notes in the air, how notes in the air became melody, how melody became song. By the time little Joe was seven, he could play elemental Bach, the fundamentals of classical resonating in his bones. Simple, slow, beautiful. The Raposos wouldn't dare send their only child to a public school where a Portuguese boy was sure to get bullied, not when there was a perfectly good Catholic school at the St. Francis Home for Orphans across the street. On his first day of class, little Joe arrived carrying a gift from his father, a handmade leather briefcase, his initials, J.R., etched on a flap. The orphan boys didn't know what to make of a curly-haired kid with a briefcase, so they tore it from his hands and tossed it in the mud. At the end of each school day, Joe's classmates returned to the orphanage. Joe went back across the street to his practice room. He was a lonely kid, Joe's son, Nick Raposo, tells me almost 70 years later. I don't think he ever got over that sense. By 8, Joe was sitting behind the organ at midnight mass. By 11, he was teaching piano to his father's youngest violin students. By the time he was a teenager, Joe was behind the organ at the Santo Cristo Parish on Columbia Street, one of the largest Catholic congregations in town. He played Lebanese weddings, bat mitzvahs at the Hebrew school, Irish jig night at the Holy Rosary Society. No matter where Joe went, if there was a piano in the room, there was a place where he could relax his shoulders and settle in behind the keys, where he could light up people's faces. Cardinal Maderos, a longtime friend of his father's, felt he had the potential to study at Harvard and offered to make some calls. The next fall, Joe Raposo from Fall River took up residence at Harvard in a suite with a grand piano. At his first college party, Joe didn't have to talk and reveal his Southern Mass accent. He didn't have to pretend like he knew the names people were dropping. He didn't have to do anything but tickle the keys and sing. With a cigarette hanging from his mouth and an assumed name, Joe passed as an upperclassman and soon began composing original songs for performances at the Hasty Pudding Theater, eventually becoming conductor and music director. He trudged to class after long nights at the piano, playing at Boston area piano bars until his fingers bled. At the Storyville Jazz Club in Cambridge, he played with Dizzy Gillespie and Billie Holiday and once warmed up Duke Ellington's band. Between classes and shows, he kept up his work-study scholarship by cleaning bathrooms, scrubbing the toilets his friends used. Joe nearly flunked out of school, but his professors could not resist his promise, seeping him in theory and ethnomusicology before securing him a summer scholarship to the French Music School for Americans in Fontainebleau, where he impressed the legendary piano teacher Nadia Boulanger, mentor of luminary composers like Copland, Carter, and Gershwin. At the edge of the ancient forest of Fontainebleau, Joe practiced solfege and keyboard harmony, memorizing cadence sheets in all keys. He drilled himself in counterpoint, splitting a single cantu six ways, three with the bass, three with the soprano. He learned to reverse his hands, harmonizing with a minor seventh chord on each degree. He learned to listen. Listen. What do you hear? No, stop. What do you hear? Not long after graduation, he got hitched to Sue Nordland, the Irish girl he'd fallen for, the chagrin of his parents. A girl who liked all the same stuff he did, music, shows, and art museums. They were going to have a big life together. He could see it when he closed his eyes, and when he opened his eyes, it was true. Joe and Sue were on the open sea, in the steerage of the Queen Mary, on their way back to France, where Mademoiselle Boulanger had beckoned him to study composing, 
in the City of Lights. The Mademoiselle was a deadly serious woman, prone to migraines and toothaches. Time without pain or distraction was precious. For the Mademoiselle, faith was the difference between a good composition and a masterpiece, and Joe Raposo from Fall River had the gift of faith. For two years, Joe sat at the piano bench in her Paris flat, while the Mademoiselle, by then in her seventies and going blind, sat beside him, listening, listening, calling out key shifts as he played, listening, listening, a minor mistake there, a semitone change there, another mistake, and there, there, the expression, F minor, the second voice, E, F, G, the essence, there it was, the inner voice. She introduced him to her circle of friends, composers, writers, painters, winemakers, the war-torn menagerie of literary Paris in the 1950s, blackout nights that ended under the sheets in their rented apartment, the second floor of a bombed-out building looking over the bombed-out city, waking up before dawn, bleary-eyed to ink out the day's assignments on movable clefts. When he left Paris for the United States, heart set on Broadway, she warned him it was a waste of his talents that would lead to an early death. By the frigid winter of 1965, Joe and Sue were back in Boston, new parents to a baby boy, Joe Jr., making ends meet in an apartment in Somerville, Joe working three jobs at a time to bring home maybe $250 on a good week. Looking for work, he would list his title as conductor and get offers to drive cars on the T. When friends visited, they would cram into the living room, which brimmed with records, art books, and sheet music, and play late into the night, guests falling asleep under the piano as Joe played freshening his drink between sets. They made the leap to New York City that summer. In his memoir, radio personality Jonathan Schwartz writes of Raposo, He was carnivorous, alcoholic, anecdotal, hyperbolic, ambitious. He played the piano in a popular mode as well as anyone I'd ever heard. Joe found steady work as a session musician, and on the strength of his improvisational skills, he joined the NBC House Band, playing occasional nights on The Ed Sullivan Show, where a bohemian-looking fellow named Jim Henson needed music to accompany his puppets. Uh, Muppets? In the closet off stage, where the side acts warmed up out of range of the boom mics, Joe and Jim hit it off. Henson was big into commercials, and he and Joe got the bright idea to pool their money together to buy a Moog, the first synthesizer and one of the most expensive instruments of the day, which they could use to score commercials for Jim's clients like IBM. Word got around that Joe could score anything. He got a call from an old Harvard classmate, John Stone, who thought he'd be the perfect match to be musical director for a new show he was producing for kids. 123 Street, or Open Sesame, or something. They hadn't finalized the name yet, but that didn't matter. They needed music. At first, the producers wanted Joe to imitate the music on the radio, the twist, that sort of tune. But Joe figured the show needed its own sound, its own band. He'd take the piano. His friend Annie Epstein could do anything on percussion. They just needed guitar, bass, horns, and reeds. The show needed a lot of songs, but Joe would get to keep all the rights. He ate in the studio, he slept in the studio, he wrote lyrics in the back of taxi cabs, on the subway, at the park with Joe Jr. and his new baby, Nico. For the initial theme song, Stone let him bring in Toots Thielmans to blow the harmonica alongside a pack of little kids called the Wee Willie Winter Singers. Like all the best musicians in the city, the children worked by the hour. Joe wrote out the entire arrangement on a single lead sheet, ran off seven copies, and passed it out to the band with a reminder. Don't quit your day jobs, he told them. This is an experiment. 
During production, Sue Raposo learned to expect the phone call that Joe wouldn't be home for dinner with the kids. He routinely worked 18 hours a day, writing hundreds of original songs and thousands of scored moments each season, with seasons clocking in at 130 hours of television by 1972. No moment in the show was too small for music, and Joe wanted feeling in every note and beat. When he wrote a song about termites, he wanted the band feeling termites. He ran copies of the lead sheets in the smallest possible size. Think small. The puppeteers pulled overtime too. Jim Henson obsessively ran the cast through as many as 40 takes until the Muppet musicians embodied true stage presence, rocking as hard as a live band. He knew as well as Joe that it was the music that brought the show to life, helping make the Muppet characters every bit as real as the humans who shared their world. The educators behind the scenes meticulously planned the academic content, but it was Raposo who infused the jingle-like tunes with life, sonic complexity, and instrumentation that spanned the world, melodies that could speak to adults and children alike. Maybe it was all the time Joe spent looking out the window as a kid. Maybe it was the loneliness of being an only child. Maybe it was sheer musical genius. Whatever it was, he had a gift for imbuing simple concepts, letters, numbers, colors, with rich emotion. When John Stone casually asked him to come up with a song for the frog, Joe took the simple directive home and overnight wrote, It's Not Easy Being Green. The simple, soulful tune was recorded during an all-night session with Jim Henson as Joe stood in front of him in the darkened studio, mouthing the words. It's not easy being green. Seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over because you're not standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. There was something elemental to the song. The idea that Kermit so buoyant, so beloved, somehow felt on the outside looking in. Raposo had reaped the rewards of the crossover hit before when the Carpenters covered Sing, but It's Not Easy Being Green struck an even deeper chord. The record was covered by Van Morrison and Diana Ross, Frank Sinatra and Ray Charles, but the Kermit rendition was the one for the ages. The first Sesame Street album from 1970, filled top to bottom with Joe Raposo originals, won a Grammy and sold hundreds of thousands of copies, peaking at number 23 on the Billboard charts, surpassing The Beatles, Aretha Franklin, Jimi Hendrix, The Jackson 5, and other hitmakers. When the first royalties rolled in, Raposo irked his collaborators by waving around the $8,000 check, more money than he'd seen in his entire life, an ostentatious display unbecoming of the sort of Ivy League men who ran the workshop in those days. Joe Raposo from Fall River had no idea what to do with that kind of money. It was the beginning of a steady stream of residuals that allowed him to move his young family into a Manhattan apartment with a terrace overlooking the Hudson River. The residuals kept rolling in, and Joe's phone rang off the hook. In his free time, Joe liked to build models with Joe Jr. and little Nico. We got a ton of attention from my father. We got a ton of attention from my father, Nick tells me, but free time was rare. It wasn't the kind of attention that I think many parents today think of. Sue would drop the kids off at the studio or the Sesame Street set to watch their dad work, but the kids often needed to stay quiet for hours at a time during sessions. Is it quality time? It was 1975 when Joe and Sue split. 
By then, Sesame Street had become an essential tour stop for musical stars like Johnny Cash, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson, Cher, and Lena Horne. The show no longer needed to reach out to celebrities. The stars called them. Joe set his sights on Hollywood. In the summer of 1975, Raposo packed his bags and flew out to Palm Springs, settling into the pool house at Frank Sinatra's place. Everywhere he'd gone in his life, Harvard, Paris, New York City, he'd had to sand the edges of his Southern Mass accent to prove himself worthy. Now, Joe went fishing with Walter Cronkite. Joe wrote campaign jingles for Jimmy Carter. When Frank introduced Joe to Ronald and Nancy Reagan, Nancy asked him to write a tune for her foster grandparents' campaign. Joe's music had become the soundtrack of American childhood. As the show's catalog grew, the music was reissued and compiled into Sesame Street Gold, a double album that became a perennial seller. There were houses, there were alimony bills, there were boats, there was child support, there were cars, there was private school tuition. Songs went out, royalty checks came in, there were calls from New York, calls from Hollywood, calls from Las Vegas, calls from London. Then there was a call from the doctor. Joe felt some lumps, barely noticeable at first, under his arms, around the groin. Pat Collins, his second wife, urged him to see his doctor just to be safe. Together, they went to see a specialist. It was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Pat was pregnant, and Joe asked the doctor whether he would live to see the child graduate from high school. The doctor told Joe he wouldn't live to see his son graduate from first grade. In that case, there was only one thing left to do, make music. Joe didn't want anyone catching the whiff of death on him. In those days, cancer could sink a man's career. Joe and Pat told nobody but their business manager, not even the kids. Pat set up an account at a pharmacy near Carnegie Hall, where Joe had an office, so that he could fill his prescriptions without raising eyebrows in their Bronxville neighborhood. In the years that followed, Joe worked in secret through swollen nodes and shortness of breath, through night sweats and chest pains, through fatigue that threatened to sap his voice from his throat. He scheduled his chemo appointments early, on the east side, before too many people were around. The steroids that helped him stay on his feet kept him from losing too much weight. If he played his cards right, nobody had to know. The 1980s proved to be some of Joe's most prolific years. He wrote theme songs for hit TV shows like Three's Company. He wrote a musical adaptation of It's a Wonderful Life. He scored and narrated a documentary, America Is, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty. In 1986, he got the call to come back to Sesame Street. The show needed to get back to its sound, the Raposo sound, worldly and eccentric, crisp and consistent, as multitudinous as life itself. And Joe needed the show, the friends, the laughs, the sense of purpose, the insurance coverage. He wrote as furiously as ever, songs about peanut butter, songs about tree frogs, songs about the alphabet, sung by Kermit the Frog and Ladysmith Black Mombazo of Graceland fame. Nobody on the show knew Joe was sick, but as the cancer took its toll, Henson pulled Pat aside. There's something very wrong with Joe, he said. You've got to tell me what it is. 
Friends recall dropping by Joe's studio at Carnegie Hall in those days to find him at the piano, composing Sesame Street music on a lyric sheet while gabbing on a phone pinched between his shoulder and ear. He had deals to close, songs to finish, friends who needed him. He had mortgages and tuition payments, alimony and chemotherapy bills. But he still had a smile on his face, a hug, a song just for you. Then one day, Joe wasn't there. Not even his own kids knew why. How was he supposed to tell his kids what he couldn't even admit to himself? Every morning was precious now, every breath. Joe was writing the musical that he thought would be his magnum opus, a stage adaptation of Raggedy Ann, based on the children's books by Johnny Grell. The music was light, but the story was, well, life. A broken home, abuse, alcoholism, even suicide. When the show premiered in Moscow, it was the first cultural exchange with the U.S. in more than 10 years. The world was broken in half, but music, music could be the bridge. The Soviet people love their children as much as we do ours. Joe told the New York Times during an interview for Raggedy Ann at his Carnegie Hall office. By then, he had made it to his goal, seeing his youngest son graduate first grade. It's a story about life, death, and love. And love conquering death. Even as Joe answered the reporter's questions... He could not keep his hands off the keys, as if he understood that any chord could be his last. What are children anyway, if not hope? No, Raggedy Ann, you're the best. Times get bad, but I don't worry. Cause I know you see me. On the chilly evening of November 9th, 1987, less than 10 months before his death from cancer at the age of 52, Joe Raposo spoke to a packed auditorium at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I said I would never do waltzes, but you may remember this one. Around, 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 over, under, through. Around, 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 over, under, Sharing the stage with Dr. Gerald Lesser, the developmental psychologist who was instrumental in the birth of the children's television workshop, Joe waxed nostalgic about his leap from St. Francis School for Orphans to the Ivy League, his endless practice sessions with Mademoiselle Boulanger in Paris, and his sunny days on Sesame Street. If you remember the bit as it developed, it got faster and faster. <laughs> Midway through the night, Joe sat down at a grand piano to demonstrate his principles penciling a new melody for the show right there and then. <laughs> anyway. Here we 
Here's what we've written, Dr. Lesser. Here's what we've written, class. Okay. Guys, there'll be a banjo something, and we'll use the band to punctuate the, the, the trumpet, the little muted trumpet, which is a little noisy, which I got from sort of Spike Jones, um, and, um, and the piccolo. So, point your fingers to the ground. Make your hands go round and round. Reach for the sky, everybody fly. Then you'll leave space because she's got to talk, okay? The audience leaned in, laughing as Joe spilled his guts. His son Nico was in the audience. You get the impression he wanted to stay up there forever, talking to these kids, talking to his son out there in the dark auditorium explaining how he learned to listen, to play, to sing a song a kid could remember. Like that one afternoon in 1973, when Joe called his friend Danny Epstein to share a song he was writing. You like my music, don't you? I don't think it's finished, Epstein said. Call me back when it's finished. But it was finished. Sometimes you gotta go with the feeling. Like earlier that summer, when Joe took Nico to Yellowstone National Park, father and son, on the road together, they found a vista point, the perfect place for a photograph. This is America. Ordinarily, he and Nico would take turns with the camera, but not today. Today, Joe wanted a shot with his kid. Give that guy the camera, Joe said, pointing to a stranger in the parking lot. Nico wasn't so sure. It was a nice camera. What if the guy ran off with it? And uh, my father's like, no, no, he won't. He's a good man. And handed the guy the camera, and the guy went off and took our picture and then brought it back. And it's, uh, it's the, actually one of the best pictures I've ever had taken of me and one of the best of him. The fella took a fine photo. Joe and little Nico, not so little anymore, arm in arm. Just beautiful. Sometimes you got to go with the feeling. Not long after that trip, Nico found out his old man was dying. Maybe he already knew that night, watching his father up on stage at Harvard. Maybe he had a feeling he didn't want to believe. I do believe that songs are all stories, Joe told the auditorium of Harvard kids. They're all tales to be told, and every song indeed has a message which has to be gotten across to whoever you're trying to tell the story to, and that story must be told with clarity. Easier said than done. Joe couldn't even be clear with his own boys and little girl. He wanted to let them in on the secret he'd kept balled up in his chest for years, like a fist, whenever he sat down at the piano, whenever he fingered out a new tune, whenever he woke up thirsty in the middle of the night. Hey guys, wake up. I gotta tell you something. I'm not gonna be around forever. Instead, he kept smiling, singing, taking in the applause like oxygen. This is the best part. Nick, Joe called out into the darkness of the auditorium. Stand up so that everyone can see. Sesame Street kids really do grow up.
People who think Joe Raposo wrote music for kids don't understand music or kids. Joe is writing music for everyone who ever looked out a window. Music about the tidal swell of human emotion. Sweet and bitter, laughter and tears, major and minor, ragtime and blues. In Joe Raposo's songbook, everything in sight was worthy of a melody. A duck, a cookie, a cloud. Every emotion could be set to music, brought to a resolution. There was a time signature for play and a time signature for grief. Familiar instruments could sound new. New instruments could sound familiar. From a person's first heartbeat until their final measure, life was complex, and so too should be the score. Chris Feliciano Arnold lives and teaches writing in the San Francisco Bay Area. To read the unabridged version of this essay, find it in the pages of The Believer. Music in the segment was performed by our very own Jeremy Klawicki. Our next segment is something we like to call an aural history. A-U-R-A-L. Through oral history, we learn firsthand how people felt, what they saw, and what they care about. In this aural history, producer Vera Blossom tells the story of the Kim sisters, a musical act who might just have been the world's first international K-pop group. She looks into the political circumstances that transported the Kim sisters from performing in their home country just after the Korean War all the way to the early days of the Las Vegas Strip. In doing so, she starts to see music as more than just a cultural or artistic product, but as a valuable resource, as necessary as food, water, or shelter. It is sustenance. Here's Vera Blossom. There are three women on screen, their hair slicked down stylishly into bouffant ponytails that swing behind them as they move. All three of them are wearing dark sequined chongsam with mandarin collars. They're smiling huge toothy grins as they sing and tap their feet and snap in rhythm to the big band. But the big band is invisible, they're just off screen. It's just these three women standing on a big blank seamless backdrop captured in black and white film. To me, these women are the epitome of glamour. These women are a musical trio known as the Kim sisters. They're Sue or Sukja Kim, Mia Kim, and Aisha Kim. Well, to 
Well, the Kim sisters were a trio of sisters originally from Korea. That's Sue Kim Chung from UNLV's Special Collections and Archives. She wrote about the Kim sisters in a write-up celebrating Asian Pacific Heritage Month in 2015. They were a famous lounge act in Las Vegas. They performed at a number of places around town. The Stardust was probably one of the most prominent places that they performed. But also, they performed all over the U.S., and they performed on the Ed Sullivan Show several times. They were very well known in the 60s. The Kim sisters became famous for their multiple-year run as musical acts on the Ed Sullivan Show, where they appeared more than 20 times. But their story starts in Korea. So one day, she came to us and says, I'm going to form the Kim sisters, three of you. They come from a musical family. Sue and Aisha Kim's mother was Nan Young Lee, a famous singer in Korea with a hit song called Makpo Tears. And their father was Hai Song Kim, a famous conductor. Sue Kim told the story to Myung Ja Lee Kwan for UNLV's Oral History Project in 1996. Were you the oldest? I'm the oldest out of three girls. So I wanted to memorize the song, which we couldn't speak English. We have to memorize. So she will learn first, then she will teach us this song that she got. Uh, I don't know where she got this song, but name of the first song. As war ravaged the country in the early 1950s, the Kim family lost everything. Their house burnt down, and their father captured by North Korea and assassinated for his anti-communist beliefs. The family needed a way to make money. Nan Young Lee put her daughters Sue and Aisha and her niece Mia Kim together to form the Kim sisters. Their act was a hit. The American soldiers encamped in Korea were hungry for culture that reminded them of home, and the Kim sisters' phonetic English singing really resonated with them. Sing for the GIs, and all the GIs loved it. So what happened was, they say, more, more, more. We didn't learn next song, so we came on again. We sing the same song over and over again. They only knew one song, and they performed it all night. You were eight. I was eight. Age, I was seven. Mia was six, actually. Mm. That's how little we were, very, very little. Uh, as a matter of fact, we started 1954. Let's in make Korea. that in Korea. Mm-hmm. So th- until 1954 to 1958, mm-hmm. we sang for the GI troops all the time. That's how we got to eat. Uh-huh. Plain language. Uh-huh. That's how we survived. Sure. Exactly. But why were American soldiers in Korea during the 1950s anyway? This was part of a larger moment. And I think this is... Uh, Dr. Mark Padung Pat is Director of Asian and Asian American Studies at UNLV. Yeah, so it was during the U.S.-Korean War. And so the United States, right after World War II, becomes the new global leader, right? Where before it was Great Britain, the leading imperial power. After World War II, the United States, you know, defeats Japan, defeats Germany, and then they ascend to the top, the quote-unquote top of global dominance. During this era... America was really concerned about the spread of communism. Part of the motivation for the American-Korean War was so that communism could be contained to North Korea. And so the reason they're in Korea is because of the threat of communism in Asia. And this threat of communism is something that they have to deal with, right, in order to spread capitalism. And so they're in Korea to fight 
against the Chinese. And so that's why they set up base camps in terms of military in South Korea. I think about the American soldiers at GI camps in Korea and how hungry they were to listen to a song in English. I wonder if they hungered for music, like how they hungered for food and clothes and water. And in the same way, breaking bread and sharing meals with a stranger can bring you closer together, music can help you feel connected, too. I wonder if it could help American soldiers feel closer to the previously distant and unknown Korean people whose home they are currently occupying. So this was not uncommon to have these kinds of Asian Orientalist shows in the United States. The 1950s and 60s, this was pretty popular, these Orientalist shows. And part of that was because, you know, as I mentioned, the United States is trying to gain foothold in Asia. And in order to gain that foothold and to promote capitalism, the State Department decides we can't just fight against communism. We have to start winning people over. We have to start winning what they call hearts and minds. And the way that they went about doing that for the State Department was to create these like cultural exchange programs to um, represent Asia in a better light. Because right before the 50s, you know, Asia and Asians, I mean, the Japanese were just interned. Asian exclusion is still in the books, Asian immigrant exclusion. And so this is a pretty big shift for the, the country and the state government to say, you know, hey, let's let's kind of build these better relationships with Asian people and start portraying them through films like Flower Drum Song, Sayonara is another movie that came out, The China Doll Review, these kinds of shows and performances. Let's start showing them as desirable, softer friends, like as friends of the United States, and even potentially that they could become assimilated to American society. I am happy to be both Chinese and American. You are like the Chinese dish the Americans invented. What do they call it? Chop suey. That is it. <laughs> Everything is in it, all mixed up. I like that. Chop suey. All of these representations of Asians, like the China Doll Review, were you know, consistent with trying to build better foreign relations with Asian countries so that they could then integrate Asia into global capitalism. Very much like chop suey, hula hoops and nuclear war, Dr. Sok and Shaja Gabor, Bobby Dad and Sandra D and Dewey. So, prior to this point, Asians were basically seen as pests, as inhuman monsters. During World War II, propaganda posters depicted racist caricatures of a Japanese man with yellow skin and claw-like hands. Something to be eradicated and defeated. At the council tables of the United Nations, we shall make plans. First for victory, then for a free post-war world. But now, we must speak the only language Japan understands. 
But when the U.S. needed Korean allyship, perhaps allyship from other Asian countries as well, shows like the China Doll Review and movies like The World of Susie Wong began to draw a different picture. I think there's a couple things that that stand out about them performing in Korea. So they were performing at military base camps and at military camps during the U.S.-Korean War. And this was how they got their start. And so they were singing American songs for these American GIs. And they were nicknamed like the Andrews, like the Korean Andrews sisters. So this is when they got those nicknames because they were singing these uh, American songs, you know, 1950s sister groups, right? Um, Right before rock and roll really hit. And so it was that kind of sound. Eventually, they were recruited by a talent agent who thought they'd be a good fit for a show in Vegas. Because our house was burned down to ground uh-huh. during uh-huh. the war. So all this show we were performing, all the GIs were talking about the Kim sisters mm-hmm. quite good. So if they go to America, mm-hmm. they will make a lot of money. So we didn't know where America was. We just, we were happy to sing for our mother. And uh, just that, we mm-hmm. loved the music. However... See, from 54 to 58, all the American soldiers will come to us, I'll take you to America. I'll take you to America. So we thought one of these days we're going to go to America. And my mother knew that there's a limitation in Korea, how much we could learn. Mm -hmm. She wants us to go to America Mm -hmm. and learn more about entertainment. The Kim sisters began performing at the Thunderbird Hotel in Las Vegas. It doesn't exist anymore, and many of the other iconic hotels of the time have since been demolished, too. So our manager, Tomber, Mm -hmm. agent, is driving through the desert. Simply, there's nothing there. All the, you know, sun went down. We see the glitter and the light and the hotel. The trip was really empty then. Empty. Nothing. But it was during this era, in the 1950s, where Las Vegas nightlife came into itself. And what so much of retro Las Vegas kitsch is nostalgic for. This was where Elvis Presley performed and stayed. Or the Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop became infamous for their talent and affiliations with the mob. As these rich gangsters came to build casinos and hotels, quickly expanding Las Vegas, they needed some entertainment to keep all those gamblers happy. So along came countless lounge singers and review shows, performers coming to sing and dance and make money with the gangsters and socialites. When the Kim sisters got to Las Vegas, they were part of a variety show called the China Doll Review. As you might guess by the inclusion of the Kim sisters, the performers in that show weren't all Chinese. They were also Korean and Japanese. The audience was primarily white people. An audience especially at that time, probably wouldn't be able to tell one country from another. It was all this exotic, far-off locale. The Kim sisters fit into that Orientalist aesthetic, right next to Chinese and Japanese performers. Either we gotta go back to Korea, mm-hmm. or somebody gonna pick up the option. This is where we were. We don't know the English, we don't know how to talk, so we sat in the corner cry. 
Oh. That's all we did. Then one of the Japanese dancers, mm -hmm. that I never forget her face, mm -hmm. she will come to us and say, Susan, Susan, don't worry, she uh -huh. says. Someday, you will be big star. Eventually, they'd be scouted and start performing at the Stardust, and then other hotels. We did six shows at night. Thank God we were young. And we, all we did was we ate, we worked, we rehearsed. Mm -hmm. And then, eventually, they'd get enough popularity to be noticed by a talent scout and be invited to perform on The Ed Sullivan Show, where they'd go on to perform more than 20 times over several years. Now we have three sisters from Korea who rate among the most versatile entertainers in the business. They not only sing, but they play about 20 different instruments, saxophone, clarinet, violin, vibes, trumpet, drums, and several others. They would have played more, but you know how kids are. <laughs> they hated to practice. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the Kim sisters. Um, so that strategy of winning hearts and minds was what Christina Klein termed the global imaginary of integration. Because there was this, the anti-communist fight or the anti-communist ideas were part of a global strategy of containment. So it was like the State Department's way to be like, let's contain and stop communism from growing. And then it was other State Department officials who, who looked at that and said, you know, it's good that we know what we're against, but what are we for? And so they introduced the global imaginary of integration, which was like, instead of thinking about the rest of the world and Asia as like places that we need to stop the spread, what if we tried to like integrate them into our culture and way of life and show them that our society is actually, because it's a capitalist one, is actually way better than any other society. And so they took that approach as opposed to just telling other people that like this is bad, trying to win them over by making the United States irresistible to them. Which is a form of colonialism. Let me just say, <laughs> I just want to be very clear about this, right? Like with the intention of it is not necessarily that we, we want Asian people. They can exist in our society as equals. It was more of like, let's uphold capitalism and our way of life. This is a good strategy to do that. I also think music's ability to capture hearts and minds is what makes it such a savvy political tool. It's hard to imagine the Immigration Equality Act of 1965 allowing more Asians to come into the country legally happening before all of this, before the China Doll Review, before the world of Susie Wong, when Asian people in general looked like monsters and enemies of the state to the white American gaze. Cultural production music, film, they can help lubricate, is the word that I, I like to use. They can help lubricate a lot of the formal foreign policy discussions and policies that can get enacted between countries. And so we don't think about them that way, but they could accelerate or they could help, you know, help um, strengthen those bonds. I think the impact of all the human senses, sound, or the way that tastes when it comes to food and can somehow be part of <laughs> this connection. Initially, 
The Kim sisters' stay here was conditional. They only had a two-week engagement at the Thunderbird Hotel. But the Kim sisters stayed in America. If their music wasn't good enough, they would have moved back to Korea, where they may not have been able to take care of themselves the same way they did here. The same goes for many Asian immigrants today. Their ability to work and to uphold capitalism, to participate in it and give themselves away to it, that's the contract that many Asians in America live under. Once you're unable to be useful to give service to this country, to capitalism, it's over. Eventually, Nanyang Lee would form her other children into a musical group called the Kim Brothers. Nanyang asked Sue Kim to manage them while leading and taking care of the Kim sisters. Both groups performed both locally and internationally into the 1970s. Aisha passed away from lung cancer in 1976. Mia Kim moved to Hungary with musician Tommy Vig, whom she met while on tour in America. Mia and Tommy Vig still perform together. Occasionally, Sue Kim joins her brothers for reunion performances in Korea. Sue Kim still lives in Las Vegas to this day. Oral History is an audio collaboration between Black Mountain Radio and the Oral History Research Center at UNLV Libraries, Special Collections, and Archives. Rasar Amani was born and raised in Sacramento, California and began rapping in 1999. A talented lyricist and MC, he recorded over 10 solo albums and venues around the world. After moving to Las Vegas in 2014, Rasar began frequenting open mic nights and building community with fellow poets and musicians. In 2015, he formed The Leak. The Leak's third album released this winter, commemorates Rasar's 36th birthday. And as it turns out, the leak is connected to the Black Mountain Radio family in a few ways. One of those ways is through our composer, Jeremy Klawicki. We end this episode with Jeremy's tribute to Rasar Amani, the band's founding member and frontman who passed away unexpectedly last fall. Rasar was always being approached by fans after our shows. I remember one specific interaction with a woman who, like so many spectators before her, like myself, had been captivated by his energy and his presence on stage and needed to know everything about him. At one point in the conversation, she asked him how old he was. He told her, well, I've been here for centuries. It was a quintessentially Rasar response, playfully cryptic, deeply spiritual, brutally honest. 
His will and his spirit existed long before the disparate elements of the universe combined into the vessel that would carry his message. On September 28, 2021, that vessel could no longer serve its purpose. But his life and his light are immortalized in the music that he left behind for us, in the videos captured by awestruck spectators, in the voice memos he sent me, all of which rest inside of the multiple hard drives I keep in my room. I don't think you understand. I'm walking down the street, which is something I never do, extremely happy, smiling, I have not been this consistently happy in a long time. Those hard drives die, and when the backups fail, when I'm long gone, Rasar will still be here, entangled in the universe, as he has been for centuries. Rasar created a universe with his voice, with his music, and that universe is timeless, and his music can take you there. Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute. Sara Ortiz is the mastermind, architect, and host. And this whole season, my lovely co-host is community leader, esteemed colleague, and my very dear friend, Erica Vitalazar. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Layla Muhammad are our fantastic associate producers. Additional production and sound by Ariel Mejia. This episode was edited by Nicole Kelly. Our production assistants for this season are Sylvia Fox, Sunny Brown, and our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki. Art by Niege Bourges. Graphic design by Lily Allen. Copy editing by Summer Tomad, and a special shout out to our engineer in the booth, Kevin Crawl. Special thanks to our contributors in this episode Chris Feliciano Arnold, Mark Padumpa, Sue Kim Chung at UNLV Special Collections and Archives, Sue Kim from the Kim Sisters. Music in our first segment is Compliments of Nick Raposo. Our voice actors are Steven Sawinski and Matthew Ceremy. Thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Can we dance to some Soul Train now? We need a Soul Train line.